The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. I apologize for um, teaching this morning without a jacket, but let's just put it this way. It's been one of those mornings, so give thanks to the Lord. I'm not taking off any more than I am, so... We are in Ephesians chapter 3 today. I know, up, I just noticed as I looked up there on the uh, screen that it says Ephesians chapter 2. Um, that is not entirely correct. Um, we're going to take a look at Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 through 20 and then we're going to take a look at chapter 3 as well. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up first of all to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll finish out this chapter and then we will go ahead and begin the next chapter. We'll start actually at verse 11 just to give you some context. Paul writes, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross." thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. When we first began this study of Ephesians last spring, uh, we said that this is a remarkable letter. It's only about six chapters long, and yet it is a mini-course in theology. Uh, depending upon who's counting, there are 27 different Christian doctrines that are covered in just these six chapters. Now, this is by no means the longest or the weightiest of Paul's letters. There are others that are more famous. Uh, the Epistle to the Romans, for example. Uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Uh, these are all longer letters. They are much weightier in terms of what they have to deal with. But there's far, probably no epistle that is more comprehensive than Ephesians. It deals with everything. It deals with the doctrine of God. It deals with the doctrine of the Trinity. It deals with the person and work of Jesus Christ. It deals with the Christian ministry. It deals with spiritual warfare. It deals with the doctrine of the saints. You name it, it's probably here in the epistle to the Ephesians. But while we said that this is an epistle that is a mini-course in theology, we also said that it is a mini-course in theology that is centered specifically on the church. The church, really, next to Jesus Christ, is the great focus of this epistle and these six chapters. And in order to understand the significance, the centrality of the church, and when I'm talking about the church, we're going to see we're not talking about bricks, mortar, and stone. We're not talking about buildings, physical buildings. We're talking about a spiritual building. We're talking about the body of Christ. When we talk about the church, it's important to understand where the church fits into God's great plan. And so I want to go back just briefly, since we've been sort of plodding our way through Ephesians, and sometimes when you focus in on particular sections or particular chapters with great detail, we forget what the overall thrust of the book is. 
So I just want to go back and review quickly what this epistle is really saying, what this is really all about. And what we said is that this is really the story of God's great plan of salvation for the world. When we started this epistle, I said that God has no plan B. You all know the story of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, of how mankind rebelled against God, and we're told that the whole of creation fell. Paul, in the epistle to the Romans, says, the whole of creation moans as in travail, that is, as in birth pangs, longing for redemption, longing for God to bring salvation. John chapter 3 says, God so loved what? The world. He loves us, specifically as human beings, but God has a great love for the world. And when he created the world, he had a plan for the world. And that plan was to make mankind his regent over the created order, to extend the blessings of Eden to everything. But we said mankind failed in that great calling. And from a human perspective, it looked as though everything that God had intended came to naught. But we said we have to remember that when it comes to God, because he is sovereign, because God is in control of the affairs of men, he is not taken by surprise. There are many things in life that shock us, and there are many things in life that surprise us. I want you to understand there is nothing that has ever happened in the history of the world that has shocked God or surprised him. He is not caught off guard. So we might think that when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden and brought a curse upon the whole of the created order that God was caught off guard and had to sort of scrap his first plan and come up with a second plan. But the scripture says that is not true. God has no plan B. Now I know you all want to know, we have a plan B, and we do. But God has no plan B. He has a plan A. And what unfolds in the pages of Scripture from the book of Genesis the whole way through to the book of Revelation, and in particular in this mini-course on theology here in Ephesians, is God's great plan of redemption. His only plan of redemption. And what was that? Well, when mankind fell, God decided, as we said, and this is the best way to put it, I think, God decided to get the Adam Project back on track. And how did he do that? We're told he called a particular man, a very specific man, living in darkness, living in idolatry. His name was Abraham. And God called that particular man, and from that particular man he created a particular nation. The children of Abraham became who? The Jews became the nation of Israel. So God's great plan to get all of this back on track, to get the Adam Project back on track, to redeem the created order, was to call a particular man. And from that particular man, to create a particular nation, Israel. And Isaiah chapter 49 says that God's purpose in calling Israel, this particular nation, was that they should be a light. A light to the nations. That is to say, they were to extend the blessings to the whole of creation. Now, that sounds very much like Genesis, doesn't it? That was the purpose of Adam and Eve, to extend the blessings of Eden to the whole of creation. But they failed in that task, so God does what? He gets the project back on track, not by scrapping the whole of creation and starting all over again, but instead calling a new Adam, as it were. Not as great as the first Adam, and certainly not as great as the second Adam, but somebody from whom there would come a new Adam. So he calls Abraham. Abraham is going to be the father of many peoples. His descendants would be more numerous than the stars in the sky or the sand on the beach. And that's the nation of Israel. And the purpose of Israel is to be a light to the nation. And from this particular nation, God calls a Savior. And that Savior is going to be the Savior of the Jews only? No, he's going to be the Savior, you see, of the world. He's going to be the Savior of the whole of mankind. And that Savior, of course, is Jesus Christ. And from this Savior, God creates a new Israel. The first Israel failed in its task to extend the blessings of God's redemption to the world. And so God called a new Abraham, a new Adam in the person of Jesus Christ. And from that new Abraham, that new Adam, he does what? 
he creates a new Israel. And just as the task of the old Israel was to be a light to enlighten the nations, so the church's responsibility, the new Israel, is to be a light to enlighten the nations. That's the purpose of the church, you see, to extend the blessings of creation of Eden to the whole world. And that's how the church is described, incidentally, particularly by the Apostle Paul in his epistle to the Galatians and Romans. He describes the church as the new Israel. So whatever Israel is supposed to do in the Old Testament and failed to do, that is the responsibility of the church in the new covenant. And Paul makes it very clear, especially here in Ephesians, that this was God's plan all along. As I said, nothing takes God by surprise. When we think of Jesus Christ being sacrificed for our sins, we think of Jesus Christ being sacrificed on a cross in Jerusalem sometime around the year 33 A.D. But actually, the New Testament describes Jesus Christ as the Lamb who was slain when? Before the foundation of the earth. That is to say, before God even created us, He knew what we were going to do. He knew we were going to rebel. He knew we would take our free will and use it against Him. And instead of scrapping the whole thing and saying, well, let's start all over again, I could do better than that, we're told that God sets in motion the means by which we would be saved from ourselves and from our sins even before we had committed the first act of rebellion. Now that's amazing, isn't it? That should give us great encouragement when we wonder what the future holds. If God was not taken by surprise by man's rebellion initially, he's not going to be taken by surprise if anything should happen to us. He has it well in hand. Again, this was God's plan all along. Uh, it's been some time since we were in Ephesians chapter 1, but go back to it, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 1. And this is what Paul says. He says, in him, that is, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth making known to us the mystery of his will. The Greek word there is mysterion. We talked about this a long time ago. When we think of a mystery, we think of what? A conundrum, a puzzle, something that we have to sort of work out, an Agatha Christie novel, a whodunit. But when the Bible speaks of the word mystery, that's not what it's talking about. In the ancient world, there were what were known as mystery religions. They were religions, the secrets of which were only revealed to the initiated. Now, if there's anybody out there that happens to be a member of the Masonic Lodge, or you're a member of some sort of fraternal organization, one of those animal lodges like the moose or the elk or whatever it is, everybody knows that they're there, then they exist, and you may know a little bit about them. But if you really want to know the ins and the outs of the organization, you have to first what? be initiated in, and then the secrets of the organization are revealed to you. There are lots of organizations like that today. Well, that's what the word mystery means. It means that God had a plan for creation. God had a plan for the world, but it was a plan that was hidden except to the initiated. And that's what Paul is saying. He's writing to people who are Christians. He's writing to us, and he says there may have been a time in history when God's plan for the world was hidden, but now it has been revealed to us. And his plan is to do what? To get the Adam project back on hand, to bring all things together in subjection under his Christ, the new Adam. And the means by which he is going to do that is what? Through means of a new Israel, through means of the church. So that's why Paul says the church is the centerpiece of history. We should never for one moment think that the church is unimportant. There is a sense in which next to Jesus Christ, the church is the most important thing in the entire world. It's the most important thing in the entire world. So that's what God is doing. He is calling a new Israel. 
Now the question remains, well, how does God create this new Israel? If that's his plan, if that's what he's revealing there in Ephesians chapter 1, how does he do it? Well, that's what Ephesians chapter 2 has been about. How does God call this new Israel? He does it by saving those who were dead in their trespasses and in their sins. In other words, he calls people out in the same way that he called out the first Israel. The Jews were God's chosen people. How many of you are aware of that fact, that they were God's chosen people? Now here's the question, why did he choose them? I mean, they were not a great people. At the time that God actually called them out, they were doing what? Making bricks without straw. They were slaves, weren't they? In Egypt, for over 400 years. Now, if you and I were going to call out a people to be a nation that would change the world and extend the blessings of God's salvation to every living creature, who would you have called? Well, most of us would have called a great nation, perhaps the Egyptians. They certainly had a vast empire. They were certainly very advanced in terms of their technology. Look at the pyramids that they built, the sphinx that they carved. Or perhaps we would have called the Greeks because of all of their enlightened philosophy. Or we would have called the Romans because they were so organized and so vast in terms of their rule. The point is, we probably would not have called the Hebrews. We would not have taken a people who were in slavery. But that's what God does. He calls them. And the Old Testament makes it very clear. He did not call them because they were a mighty nation. He did not call them because they were a great nation. He called them why? Because it pleased him. Now that's not to say that God may not have had a reason for calling the Jews. The point is, we don't know what it is. He called them because it pleased him to do so. And because, Paul says later on, God takes the things that are foolish, the things that are despised, the things that are little in the eyes of the world to bring to naught the things that are great. And in so doing displays his glory among the nations. So God called the first Israel. Why? Because it pleased him to do so. Why does he call the second Israel? Because it pleases him to do so. He makes people who were dead in their trespasses and in their sins alive again. Now, we've already been through this. How much good can a dead person do? Nothing. You, you can preach sermons to people out there lying in the cemetery till the cows come home, but there's nobody that's going to respond to the altar call because they're dead. Well, you see, the children of Israel could not free themselves from their bondage in Egypt. You and I cannot free ourselves from our bondage to sin, but God, in His mercy, makes us alive even when we were dead. Paul says, for it is by grace that you have been saved, not by works, so that no man may boast. That's what God does. That's how He begins to call the new Israel. He makes those dead in their trespasses and sins alive again. Furthermore, Paul goes on to say, he then tears down the dividing wall of hostility that exists between God and mankind. We took a look at that a couple of weeks ago. And how does he tear down that dividing wall of hostility? By the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ, who is the new Adam, who is able to fulfill the calling that the first Adam failed to fulfill. And having torn down that dividing wall of hostility, conflict, God does what? He brings those who were far off near. He makes those who were foreigners to the covenants and the promises members of God's household. He makes those who are without God and without hope in the world to be a people who have hope and have peace. They have peace with God and they have the peace of God. Do you understand that there's a difference between those two? Every single person in the world, and certainly every single person in this room, is searching for one thing. Now, you may not know it. You think you may be working, looking for wealth and fame, and, but let me tell you, every single person in this room is looking for one thing. You are looking for peace. And by peace, I mean what the Jews called shalom, perfect contentment. That peace which passes human 
understanding that even if the world is going to hell in a handbasket around you, you have a sense of serenity, a sense of contentment. How many of you want that? You better believe it. And those of you who didn't lay your, raise your hands, you still want it. You just don't realize it. That's what you're searching for in all the things of this world. We all want the peace of God which passes human understanding. But here's the problem. You can never have the peace of God until you first have peace with God. And that is what Christ has done. He has made peace with God by His shed blood upon the cross as an atoning sacrifice that makes up for our sins and makes it possible that having been brought near... Having been made members of God's household, we can then enjoy the blessings of that familial relationship, namely, the peace which passes human understanding. But God has called us not only from something, saved us from sin and death and wrath and hopelessness, He has saved us for something, for a purpose. Israel was called out from their captivity, their bondage, for a purpose to do what, we said? to be a light to the nations. You and I have been called out from our bondage to sin into a marvelous relationship with God for what? The same purpose. To be a light to the nations. That's what the Christian church is supposed to be. And if the Christian church is not doing that, it's not the Christian church. If an individual congregation or denomination, is failing to be a light to the nations, failing to tear down those dividing walls of hostility and bring people into fellowship with God, it is not being the church. One could make the argument it really isn't the church. Because our job is to do the same thing that Christ did. You know that's what the word Christian means? The word Christian means a little Christ. A Christ one. So the purpose of being a follower of Jesus Christ is to do what Christ did, to tear down the dividing walls of hostility and make one man out of the two. That's what Paul says there in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. That's why Christ came into the world. That's the purpose of the church, to make peace. Now, what does that kind of a church look like? If that's what Ephesians is really all about, if that's God's great plan for the history of the world, what does that kind of a church look like? Paul gives us three images for the church here in this passage from Ephesians. The first thing that he tells us is that the church is a kingdom. It is a kingdom. Listen again to how he puts it. And he came and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in the one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Now the key word here is the word citizen. Now, we have to unpack that a little bit because you and I live as 21st century Americans. And when we think of citizens, we think of people who are members of a democracy or a republic in which people have the right to what? Govern themselves. You have to understand that when the Apostle Paul wrote these words in Ephesians, there was no such thing as democracy in the world. There was a relatively short-lived philosophy of democracy that flourished for a very brief time, about three decades, in Athens. But that was about it. Nobody understood the notion of democracy in the ancient world. And actually, the idea of a democracy, in terms of the Christian life, is a foreign concept. This may come as a real shock to some of you, but God doesn't run for re-election. 
Now, when Paul uses the word citizen there, he was probably thinking of a city-state. That's what existed in the ancient world, city-states. And city-states were not democracies. City-states were kingdoms. Now, there was a vast empire. There was the Roman Empire. And within the Roman Empire, there were all of these little city-states that had tribal chieftains or they had kings. And in the ancient world, kings ruled by divine right. So when Paul says what God has done in the church is that he's taken people who were dead in their trespasses and in their sins, who were in bondage, just as the children of Israel were once in bondage, he calls them out of that bondage, he makes peace with himself and with them, and then he makes them citizens. Perhaps a better word would be subjects. Subjects of his kingdom. Now, this is a major biblical theme, the kingdom of God. You find it everywhere. It's in the Old Testament where they're looking forward to the sovereign who is going to come, a savior, a redeemer, a messiah, who would reestablish a kingdom and would sit on what? David's throne. That's what they were looking forward to. And when you get to the New Testament, almost immediately you are introduced to this idea of kingly reign, of a kingdom. Who's the first person besides Jesus or Mary and Joseph that you encounter generally in the Gospels? There's a point where all four of the Gospels come together. John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Jesus said of all the men born of women, there was no one ever greater than John the Baptist. And that's pretty impressive. He doesn't appear for very long in the Gospels, but Jesus said he was the greatest man that was ever born. And what was the message that he proclaimed? Repent. Yeah, repent, but repent, why? For the kingdom of God is at hand. That was the message, you see. A kingdom has come. A sovereign has arrived. A monarch. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus talks about a kingdom. Almost all of his parables were parables of the kingdom, weren't they? The kingdom of God may be compared to a man who went out and found a pearl of great value buried in a field. And he went and sold everything that he had that he could come and purchase that field and attain to that pearl. The kingdom of God is like a man who went out and sowed seed. Some of that seed fell on the hard soil and some fell on the rocky soil and some fell on thorny soil and some fell on good soil. The kingdom of God is like, and Jesus would go on and on again. And if you flip the whole way to the end of the New Testament, to the book of Revelation, what is that whole book about? A king who shall appear in triumph. We say it every Sunday. And he shall come again to judge the quick and the dead. And his kingdom shall have what? No end. We say it every time we say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. This is a major theme in the New Testament. You cannot understand the New Testament at all unless you understand this notion of a kingdom. That is what Jesus Christ comes to set up. We even have a Christ the King Sunday in the life of the church. Now this is a major biblical thing. What does it mean to say that the kingdom of God has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ? What is the kingdom of God? Clearly it is not like the kingdoms of this world. Well, that's what the disciples thought. They said, oh, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, grant that one of us may sit at your right hand and one may sit at your left, James and John. And Jesus made it very clear. The kingdom of God does not advance by force of arms. It does not advance with armies. The kingdom of God, Jesus said, is within you. It is a spiritual kingdom. But it's a kingdom nevertheless because in the ancient world, as I said, kingdoms were ruled by kings who reigned by divine right. They had absolute authority. So when we talk about being subjects of the king, what we really mean is that place where Christ reigns. The church, the new Israel, is that place where Christ reigns supreme, as sovereign. Not some sort of elected official. Well, if we don't like what he wants to do, well, we'll get rid of him in the midterms. He is an absolute sovereign. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is that place where God 
reigns. Now, there is a sense in which God, of course, is sovereign over all things. But the way that Paul uses it here, he's saying, it is that place where God reigns. Reigns how? In the hearts and the minds and the lives of his people. What is the church? The church is that place where God can be seen to be sovereign. Where his mandates and his commands are taken seriously. Where his people submit themselves to his rule, not merely as their Savior, but as what? Their Lord. That's where that language comes from. The language of lordship is the language of kingship. So if you want to know what the church looks like, the church which is the centerpiece of history, the church which is the new Israel, the church whose job is to extend the blessings of Eden to the whole of creation and get the Adam project back on track, what is the kingdom? What is the church? The church is that place where God reigns. Any church or any organization that calls itself a church, but God does not reign in it, Paul says it's not really the church. And any people who claim to be subjects of the king, but the king does not reign in their hearts, they're not really members of this kingdom. The second image that Paul uses here is the image of a family. He said they will be citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That is perhaps one of the most wonderful images of all. Because we all want a place, don't we? We all want a home. We all want to be included. We all want to be part of a family. That's what we long for. And Paul says that is what the church is. The church is a place where God reigns, but it is also a family. Now, every family has a head, and Christ is the head of the family, but you are part of an organization, and not just an organization, but a community. How many of you think family is an important thing? We all long for family, don't we? And when we lose family members, we grieve it. Well, you see, in Christ, we are made members of a forever family. I think I've told you this before. When I was uh, ordained, uh, I was used to um, going to our families for all the great holidays. But, you know, that doesn't work out when you're a clergyman. Uh, every now and then somebody will say, well, you're coming home for Christmas? Where, to Pennsylvania? Yeah, you're coming home. Well, I'm a little busy on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. I, I, I don't know why. Family just can't seem to get that through their minds. But... Um, what about Thanksgiving? Well, we actually have a service on Thanksgiving Day. Well, how about Easter? Well, actually, we're kind of busy on Easter as well. I mean, there's hardly a holiday where the clergy are not busy. And I'll tell you, when I was first ordained, that was a hard thing. We've got a son that's, that's just gotten married, and uh, he's in graduate school right now. And, of course, we were asking, well, what are you going to do for Thanksgiving? Well, when you're married, you've got to compromise. You've all been down that road before. And it's hard. It's hard to let go. But I remember one Christmas Eve, after I had been at St. Helena's for some time, I suppose I'd been there for about 12 years, and uh, none of my family could be together with none of my extended family, just my immediate family. But on Christmas Eve, I couldn't even be with them. They were at home, and I was at church. And yet, as people came forward to receive the sacrament on Christmas Eve and held up their hands and looked and smiled at me and I smiled at them and I knew them all by name and they knew me, God spoke to me and he said, here's your family. You're mourning your family. Here's your family. And this is a forever family. There's nothing that is ever going to separate you from these people. You are going to spend eternity with these people. And I'll tell you, that was a revelation. Because... <laughs> What that meant was I better start getting right with some of my family because I was going to have to spend eternity with them. But what a wonderful thing to know that this is family. You are my family. Now somebody said, well, do you mourn the loss of the, the people at St. Helena's? Oh, I, I do, but God's given me a new family. You are my family. 
Now, how do you become a member of the family of God? The same way you become a member of any family. By birth or by adoption. That's how you become a member of God's family. You become a member of God's family by means of birth. That's what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It happens by new birth. The Apostle Peter says we have been reborn or born again into a living hope. He says it twice in that first epistle. So how do you become a member of God's family? By the new birth. By the new birth. By grace through faith. And that happens by adoption as well. Both of those things are true in the family of God. You can become a member of a family today by birth. You're born into a family or you're adopted into a family. In the case of Christ's family, it's both. We are reborn by the Holy Spirit and we are adopted into God's family. And we've already pointed out that in the ancient world, adopted children could never be disinherited. So when you become a member of God's family, you can never be separated from God. Neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come, nothing in all of creation can ever separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, if you're a member of that family. The church is a kingdom. It's that place where God reigns, where he is sovereign, where he is in control. And his children are subject to his authority. But it is also a family where the Father cares. Jesus on one occasion said, What father, if his child asks for bread, will give him a serpent or give him a stone? He said, If your earthly fathers know how to give you good gifts, even when you're a sinner and they're a sinner, how much more will your Father in heaven give those who ask of him? You're members of a family. And finally, he says the church, while it's a kingdom where God reigns, while it's a household, he says it is also a holy temple. They become citizens of the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a what? A holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place by God the Holy Spirit. So the church is a temple. What is a temple? It's a place of worship, but it's more than that. It's the place where the deity dwells, isn't it? If, if you go into ancient cultures, you will see temples. Those of you who are going on the trip with me to, to Greece, you're going to see lots of ancient temples with statues of the deities. That's where the deity was expected to dwell. The church is the temple where God dwells. It's not just God who is transcendent and removed and aloof, who lives way up there and we live way down here. It is God who comes to dwell in the midst of his people. Isn't that the mystery of the incarnation? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek literally is tabernacle, pitched his tent in our midst. So the church is that place where God dwells. It's not a building. Because we are described as what? We are the church. We are stones, if you will. And we'll come to that in a moment. But we are the church, that place where God dwells in the midst of his people. This is why the scripture says where two or three are gathered in his name, what? He is there in the midst of them. So the church is the place where God dwells with his people. Now, like all structures, this, of course, is a spiritual structure, not a physical structure, but it's analogous. All structures have a foundation. You cannot have a sound building. If you were here last Sunday, I preached on this very theme, and I talked about the Tower of Pisa. It started in 1173. It's one of the grandest buildings in all of Europe, over 400 feet tall, or 800 feet tall, excuse me, and, and it weighs in at 14,000 metric tons. It's a remarkable building. But what do people go to the Tower of Pisa to see? And why does it lean? 
Well, if you were there last Sunday, soft, marshy ground, very good. Somebody was listening to the sermon. The word Pisa means soft, marshy ground. They build on soft, marshy ground. And the building leans. That's what it was called originally. So it is soft, marshy ground. Because the foundation is not solid, what happens to the building? It is compromised. It falls over. But you see, the church of Christ is not built on soft, marshy ground. It is built on a solid foundation. And what does Paul say the solid foundation is? The apostles and the prophets. Now that is very important. Because there are times when people will get in debates and they'll say, yeah, yeah, I know. I know what Peter said and I know what Paul said about this subject or that subject. But what I'm really interested in is what did Jesus say? You know, we always say Jesus trumps Peter or Paul as though the two are in conflict with each other. There's a reason why every Sunday when we profess our faith, we stand and we say we believe in one holy Catholic and what? Apostolic church. It is because God passed on his ministry, Christ passed on his ministry to the apostles, to Peter and to Paul, which means that when Paul speaks, when Peter speaks in the context of Holy Scripture, this is Christ speaking to us. We give lip service to this at least. We have a reading from the Ephesians in church. We'll say a reading from St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. When we get to the end, we say the word of the Lord. So if you want to know what a church is, a church is a holy temple. It's where God's people dwell and where God dwells in their midst. But it is a temple that is built upon a solid foundation, and that foundation is the apostolic witness. So that is anything that is contrary to the apostolic witness is what? Unstable subsoil. Now you say, well, I thought Jesus Christ was the foundation. Well, he is. Because who do the apostles bear witness to? Jesus Christ. The way Paul describes it here, the apostles and the prophets are the foundation, but Jesus is the cornerstone. This is repeated over and over again in Isaiah chapter 28. We're told, see, I'm laying in Zion a precious stone, a tested stone for a sure foundation. Psalm 118 says the same thing. Matthew chapter 21, the same thing. Now this is key, this notion of a solid foundation. Last week I talked about the purpose of the Christian life being to tear down the dividing walls of hostility. I said that you and I have the same job that Jesus did. Jesus came and made peace by his blood shed on the cross. He made peace between man and God. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We were to do what? Tear down those dividing walls of hostility. And somebody came to me this past week with a very interesting question, which I did not tackle last week, but was pretty obvious to him and should have been obvious to me. Well, what about this terrible lawsuit that we find ourselves in with the Episcopal Church? If our job is to make two one, if our job is to tear down the dividing walls of hostility, if our job is to be reconciled, what are we going to do about this lawsuit? Well, that's a pretty good question, isn't it? Here's the answer. Paul gives it to us here. There can never be unity unless there's unity in what? In the truth. There can never be unity unless it's unity in the truth. This is one of the ironies of Jesus' ministry. The Old Testament describes the coming Messiah as the King of Kings, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And yet Jesus, when he arrives on the scene, said, I have not come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. I came to divide. These are Jesus' words. Mother from daughter, father from son, mother-in-law from daughter-in-law. They say, well, how do I reconcile those two things? He came to be the prince of peace, but on the other hand, he says he didn't bring peace. He brought a sword. He brought division. Why is that? It's because Jesus Christ came to bear witness to the truth, and the truth, my friends, will always divide. But where there is peace, it's that place where people are united in the truth. And if they are united in the ultimate truth of what? 
of Jesus Christ as King, as Lord, then all of a sudden the differences, the other differences that they have, pale in comparison. So God wants us to have unity, but there's no unity without the truth. You know this to be true in your own lives. C.S. Lewis once described a true friend as one with whom you share the highest truth. Everyone else, he said, is a mere acquaintance. If you date somebody, and for some of you it's been a long time since you've actually dated, although I encourage people who are even married to date, your spouse, <laughs> just for clarification's sake. But you know, if you are married to somebody, and you have a lot of things in common, but the most important thing in your life is not the most important thing in her life, then no matter what you hold in common, there's always going to be that division, isn't there? On the other hand, if he likes Carolina, she likes Clemson, but you both believe that Jesus Christ is the most important thing, then you can live even with that difference. See, that's the only way that unity is truly possible, if there is unity in the truth. And that's why Paul says, in order for the building to stand firm and stand together and not fall apart is if the foundation is firm and the foundation is the truth of God's Word, resting upon the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ Himself, who was the way, the truth, and the life, the chief cornerstone. Now, what's our job in all of this? Our job is to recognize that we are stones in that temple. You and I are stones in God's temple. Living stones is the way Peter describes it. Now, I'm going to have to rush through this because I've already run out of time. But let me just try to get through some of this. When a builder builds a building, the stones are chosen and shaped by the builder. If you are a member of God's temple, you have been chosen and shaped by him. The stones are positioned by the builder in relationship what? To the cornerstone. That's which holds all things together. The keystone, the capstone. Every stone serves a different function. Some stones are big, some stones are small, some stones are placed in this position, some in another position. But they all have a different shape and they have a different function. You have a different shape and a different function from the other people in this room, but you are still part of the building. The stones are linked to one another. You and I are connected to one another, and we need one another, because if one of those stones pops out of place, what happens to the rest? Stones are placed not to draw attention to themselves, but to the building as a whole. You and I are not here to bring attention to ourselves. We are here to bring attention to what? To the temple of God, to the body of Christ. And the placing of the stones is an ongoing process. In the case of God's temple, it's an ongoing process until the end of time. One more thing, and I wish I had time to look at this, but the building of God's temple is holy and silent work. There's a story told in 1 Kings where when the stones were hewn for the great temple, the temple of Solomon, they were shaped and hewn a great distance from the construction site. So that at the construction site, because it was so holy, they never heard the sound of a chisel or a hammer. Every piece would then be transported silently to the site and put in place. It's holy work. God is calling into his temple people. It is an ongoing process. They're all different shapes of stones. They all have a different function, but the function is all the same. That is to what? To be part of a building where God will dwell with his people. And throughout history, he has been calling all different kinds of stones. He called a stone called Peter. His word Petros means pebble. <laughs> he called Paul. Now, you might say, well, those are big stones. True enough. But he called different sizes. Mary Magdalene. Lydia, a Gentile woman. Augustine of Hippo. 
mystics like Teresa of Avila. At the time of the Reformation, he called a very contentious German monk named Martin Luther, John Calvin. In England, he called Thomas Cranmer. In more recent times, he called Billy Graham and Mother Teresa. And the question is, is he called you? Are you part of that temple? Are we at St. Philip's, the church that Paul describes here? Are we a church that is going out and reconciling the world? Are we a church that is going out and making a difference, being a light to the nations? That's how we know if we're really the church. So let me ask you those three questions again. Is this a place where God reigns supreme over the lives and the hearts and the minds of his people? Because that's what it means to be church. Are we a family? Do we care for one another? Do we know one another? Do we bear one another's burdens? Because that's what it means to be church. And are we a holy temple? With all different kinds of gifts, all different kinds of talents, but all one goal. To reconcile the world to Jesus Christ. In other words, when people come into our fellowship on Sunday morning, when they encounter us on the street, do they meet Jesus Christ? Do they come through the doors of St. Philip's Church and it's like those children in the Chronicles of Narnia who pushed through all of those fur coats in that old wardrobe and they came out on the other side into a magical land where there was a great line. Do people do that? When they come to St. Philip's, do they step through those doors and by the way we treat them, by the message they hear, by the music that is proclaimed, do they come into contact with a whole new world? Do they come to know the great lion, the Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ? That's what it means to be the church. May God grant us the grace to be that kind of people, a kingdom, a family, a holy temple. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy and for your salvation. And we thank you for your church. Grant us the grace to be a holy people who serve you and the people who in coming to know us, others may come to know him, whom to know is life everlasting. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.